brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechats.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss, so become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Well, it's another day in paradise, dear people. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and while the world remains focused on listening for the next lockdown decree, looking for the latest monolith, and begging Santa for a shiny new vaccine under the Christmas tree this year, the planet's puppet masters are building a new technological layer to reality that makes your favorite sci-fi dystopia look like Candyland. Of course, we can examine history and find many examples of the Predator class speaking about us as a plight on their planet, a human herd of cattle requiring their management conveniently caught up in their hamster wheels and rat races that nobody seems to be too thrilled about, but we still see them getting standing ovations when they walk into a room because they call their control scheme implementation efforts philanthropy. They get away with things to the degree that they can, and just because slavery in the most obvious of terms is no longer in our faces, it doesn't mean that it's not still a part of the product pipeline for our shiny new gadgets, or that economic slavery isn't alive and well pretty much everywhere. They've never stopped looking at humanity as an expendable mob of undesirables, they just learn to be more subtle about it. And now that we're in an age where they have the technology to fulfill their true vision, we better wise up fast, and just watching The Social Dilemma isn't going to do it. That film shows a very limited view of one aspect of where we were a decade ago, but today's guest Allison McDowell shows us where we're going. She's the brilliant mind behind WrenchInTheGears.com, where she writes about and presents a holistic look at the plans of the Predator class, forming a clearer and more complete picture of the puzzle than anyone I've seen, and I really look forward to getting into it. The talented, technocratic, dystopia dissector, great reset resistor, and true Wrench in the Gears, Allison, welcome to The Higher Side. Oh, thank you very much. That's a wonderful and very generous introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I try, but man, this is a a true pleasure. The same day I watched your great Q&A with my buddy Gordon White from Rune Soup, a friend of yours, Stephanie, put us in contact, and I'm very thankful for that because I interview a lot of people who might have a good handle on one piece of this thing or will use the term technocracy or they'll say something like the vaccine doesn't seem like it's the true end goal here, but it gets a bit fuzzy after that. So I know every interview pretty much starts the same way, but 
So many people have different entry points that take them tumbling down the big rabbit hole. And yours is not only unique, but it also might help to hear if we're trying to share this with our friends and family who don't see things how we see them. I guess talk to us about how your local engagement in the Philadelphia education system kicked off your study of something much bigger. Oh, okay. So I'm a mom, I'm an independent researcher, and I work half time at a public botanic garden. And so all of these things, and I, I do this in the city of Philadelphia, which is a very poor city, and it is a black city, and it's a city that's sort of run under democratic establishment, including our former mayor, Michael Netter, is sort of a central figure working with Michael Bloomberg on a lot of this. So I'm sort of living in an incubator for this new technocratic program. We're also home to the University of Pennsylvania and the Wharton Business School. So those are other key pieces. And what I didn't know, you know, maybe seven years ago when I first started, I, I was just a mom that would help out in the school doing volunteering and sorts of things. But in 2013, uh, Boston Consulting Group came into our school district, which has been used as a test bed for all sorts of privatization efforts for many, many years. And they closed 23 schools and they laid off 3,000 teachers. And then shortly thereafter, they decided to implement a new rating system for schools that would essentially grandfather charter schools and not look at the same criteria and then essentially grade these schools that had been totally destabilized, the remaining schools under this report card system. And I just knew that wasn't right. So I, I ended up showing up. They schedule these meetings, you know, in the dog days of summer when parents are away or trying to scramble for childcare. So, you know, if they're scheduling meetings, you know, in these later parts of the summer that they don't actually want anyone to show up. And when I showed up, that was sort of my entry point to understanding, following the money and looking at who's behind these policies, because they weren't originating from within our school district. They were very much coming from the outside, these special interests. And this particular project was funded by the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation, both to implement these report cards for schools and to start to have a universal enrollment program. And so at the time, I thought, oh, they were weaponizing the standardized test scores to close the schools. And I thought, well, I will get involved in trying to encourage people to opt out of the tests. And actually, I made a lot of contacts around the country in that, including a number of wonderful people in San Diego. I didn't realize that's where you were based in, in San Diego and wow. Philadelphia. have very close connections in this ed reform journey. And so we fought that for several years until I, I realized that eventually the school district was cooperating with our opt-out requests, which was very inconsistent because they've never done anything to support families, even if it was, they were legally mandated to do that. And what I realized later was that it was a transition to educational technology and that they would end up removing the end of year high stakes tests because ultimately those are not going to work for these bond markets that we're talking about. And they would implement all the time assessment through educational devices, which would not only generate profits for a company like Dell that sells computers and software, but would also generate sort of mass signals intelligence on the social nature of the country's population and feed into predictive analytics, which is very much also what Dell does through their association with the NSA. <laughs> so mm -hmm. it wasn't really just about selling computers. It was also about creating data markets and then managing those markets, both from a point of view, I believe, of military signals intelligence and also workforce, labor force management in an era moving forward that is much more about reducing the role of human labor in all capacities as the fourth industrial revolution rolls out. So that was sort of my, my thing. And I, I took it to a certain point, but eventually I was not making much progress in the education sphere. You know, educators are really overwhelmed and 
I wasn't making much progress. So the other thing is our city, again, is it's a very poor city. And these markets that I'm going to talk about, pay for success, finance and social impact bonds are essentially fueled by poverty and trauma. So I ended up moving over to work with the Poor People's Economic Human Rights Campaign, and they they don't take outside money, and they were doing mutual aid work around issues of poverty and housing access and also substance use because we're the center of the heroin epidemic. So, you know, I did that for a while, and then the pandemic happened, and then I realized that many of the things I thought had maybe a 10-year lead time to try to explain to people what was happening got put on fast forward, and I had no idea whatsoever that a global public health event would be the trigger to put all of this in place and to put it on fast forward. But that's what's happened. Mm. Yes, I've definitely heard you refer to COVID as a sort of trigger event for this research you were already on. And it is a very unique skill to be able to follow these things from local implementation of international corporate think tanks, just all the way to the top. I don't know why some people just have cognitive dissonance and, and don't realize how these things are implemented on a very basic level. I've said to people this year, isn't it curious that Bill Gates has been investing in two major things over the last decade, global health and vaccine programs and digital software-based schooling. And when you think about it, there was no justification for this need for software-based learning pre-COVID. And that should send up some red flags to people. But the Bill Gates piece is obviously pretty small. Beyond that, Can you talk to us about some of this greater synergy that we see taking place because of COVID? What are the other plans that really seem to be coming together in in similar ways, like this pay for success finance and some of these things they were talking about before? Okay, so I'd like to take a minute just to sort of lay out what pay for success finance is, because that's a very integral part of understanding how data analytics fits into everything. And I would just say, too, that Bill Gates is certainly a problematic individual. I think he provides cover for many other individuals who are equally dangerous or potentially more dangerous, and that we should just be aware when we talk about this that he's sort of the front for many people that he is sort of sheltering from the spotlight. Mm -hmm. So it's important to understand his power, but it's also important to understand that there are other players working sort of behind that. And this is linked to the pay for success finance. So I would encourage if people haven't watched lately or haven't seen the movie The Big Short, which is essentially outlining how the last global economic crash happened around the housing market. The film very much talks about the bundled mortgages, these debt securities where they take something that is physically real and tangible, like a person's home, right, that becomes more and more abstracted as you have a mortgage, as it's sold, as it's resold, as it's bundled with other mortgages, and then sold in these futures markets and hedging markets. That happened, and we have been living through 10 years of destabilization. So many people never really recovered from that last crash. They lost homes. They never reattained stable employment. We've seen the the rise of the gig economy. People like Blackstone entities, they scooped in and picked up most of that housing on the cheap. And now they're the largest private rental homeowner in the country. That's very significant. So that set the stage for what is becoming essentially the next iteration. And if you imagine that that had to happen with the mortgages because the wealth was so concentrated and within capital, it has to continue to flow. If it doesn't flow, the entire system will fall apart. It has to both flow and expand. As you have increasing wealth disparity, 
the poor don't have the buying power to prop up these markets that are really based in debt. They can't do it. They're in debt. They don't have the buying power. Their wages are stagnating and they have these gig economy jobs that are highly unstable. So how would you leverage that situation to make more profit for those who already have the most wealth? And the answer is, is that you will use these techniques of structured debt finance that were created around the mortgage debt security scenario, and then you will apply that to human capital. So they will invest in people, and that happens in privatized public services, and they will essentially set up people on improvement plans that will then allow this public benefit access to do the improving of people. And that improvement could take the form of education, training, healthcare, mental health care, substance treatment, housing, food assistance, support for the elderly. All of these benefits would not be paid initially out of the public coffers, which have been drained dry, but will be framed as investments for the private sector through public-private partnerships. And then once that public benefit access is privatized, the debt can be securitized and traded on global markets. And so these arrangements with the public-private partnerships, they happen through something called outcomes-based government contracting that started in the mid-1990s. There's a gentleman, Arthur Rolnick, who was a head economist at the Minneapolis Federal Reserve. And he and this gentleman, Stephen Rothschild, developed the early prototype for the outcome-based contract. But now as the technology has become more and more sophisticated, they're able to scale these contracts in ways that will be linked to what the World Economic Forum calls the internet of bodies and in smart city environments. So increasingly, we're operating as you know, entities within ubiquitous sensing environments. That's what the fourth industrial revolution is about, is about imposing a coded overlay to the world that will track you almost as a playable character in it augmented reality video game, like in an open air global prison run from space by the satellite systems. <laughs> and so as you're put on your pathway, because you have been dispossessed out of your job by the lockdowns, you will meet up with someone who will put you on an improvement pathway that will require accomplishing these items. And then we'll track your ability, your compliance to the pathway through sensor devices some of which may ultimately be implantable, right? At this point, it could just be your phone. And that's what the Obama phones were for, you know, handing out to low-income people to access their benefits. It will start out probably on a phone with QR codes, but then ultimately I think it will shift towards wearable technology and possibly internal biosensors. But you will be put on a pathway and then the hedge funds will securitize the debt related to servicing you on that pathway. And then they will trade that debt on global markets. And it's crazy. It sounds insane that that is the plan. But essentially, the past decade leading up or more, Hewlett Packard, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, has been reshaping all of the nonprofits in the West and even through development aid around the world to become data driven. They call it what works data driven, evidence based. And so all of that is shifted to being about the data. And that corresponds with what happened in the education sector. Why? the shift to the technology, the shift to the standardized curriculum. It's all about feeding and setting up standardized markets of achievement for these pathway programs. It's also related to the rise of the electronic health records that came with the Affordable Care Act. So that's the health care component. And then it's also tied in with in the housing sector. In Philadelphia, we've seen our housing authority has shifted away from not managing their own housing, actually allowing their housing stock to run down and then flipping it to developers and then 
using voucher-based systems to have people access housing in the private market. But then that is all conditional. So there are prototypes that have been set up over the past about eight years or so. It started out with this concept called the social impact bond that really developed widely in the United Kingdom by a gentleman by his name is Sir Ronald Cohen, and he's a Harvard MBA. And he developed social impact bonds around prison, anti-recidivism programs, keeping people out of prison. But now it's expanded to a number of different things, including social care, homelessness, and social prescribing. Michael Bloomberg brought that concept over to the U.S. The first one was at Rikers Island Prison, and that was backed by Goldman Sachs. But they have other deals around providing pre-K for children. And it's always predicated on a cost offset. It's all a fiction. You have to understand none of it is actually real. It's just the game as the most elite, powerful people in the world have decided to play it. And so it's just how they make it look on paper through data. But there is a cost offset that will justify their profit taking. So for example, the first social impact bond for pre-K was in Salt Lake City. And they set up a deal, the cost offset was special education. They said if they provided pre-K for an identified group of children who might be at risk of needing special education, they would rescreen them at kindergarten. And then if they didn't need it, the government would have quote unquote saved that expense and then could therefore shave off part of the money they didn't spend and give it to Goldman Sachs and the other investors. And so what happened was that they screened about 100 kids into this program. But ultimately, when the time came for them to go to kindergarten, only one out of the 100 actually qualified, which is totally not consistent with what you would expect to happen. It would not be that small a number, even if you had the most incredible pre-K imaginable. Those numbers would never have worked out. But Goldman Sachs took that as profit. And then the plan is through the Kauffman Foundation and Ready Nation is to securitize that. So that's one. But then recently, Jack Murphy, who's the governor of New Jersey, all of the people who will be reskilled, having lost their jobs under the lockdowns, they're pushing them into big pharma and coding and smart energy. So they have a program set up and Jack Murphy is 27 years Goldman Sachs, his career in Goldman Sachs. They will create income sharing agreements for people to be reskilled as adults into these new job sectors that will fulfill the creation of a global police state or in a cyborg state through synthetic biology and the pharmaceuticals. And so people will have to agree to have an income sharing agreement, not just for their training, but their wraparound services associated with that. And then that means that when they get a job that meets the criteria of the contract, they have to have their wages garnished for a certain amount of time. Well, the debt tied to these income sharing agreements has been set up as a giant global equity market. And that was done in 2018 at the Arizona State University Global Silicon Valley gathering. Actually, often they meet in San Diego. It's Michael Crow of InQtel in Arizona State. And a guy said, we're going to create these giant equity markets. Well, here you go. So now Jack Murphy has said, we're creating what they're called career impact bonds. And they're going to reskill all of these people into the jobs that they want them to have to build the world that they foresee this military digital world that's coming. But the debt securitization is going to happen on all of those income sharing agreements. So they have prototypes that have been happening in coordination with Harvard Kennedy Schools, their government performance lab, third sector capital partners, and the nonprofit finance fund, George Overholzer, who came out of Capital One credit cards, was behind all of that. There's a group of pilots in the Santa Clara County, California, that's for pre-K, early literacy, mental health, and homelessness. 
And within the construct of these pay for success deals, there's always a third party evaluator to make them appear legitimate. In the case of the homelessness and the mental health social impact bond in Santa Clara County, the individuals reviewing the deals in that case are Palantir. So that's Peter Thiel's company that deals with homeland security and predictive policing. So there's incredibly huge ethical problems with the way that these deals are structured. And then even if you were to set some of those aside and say, well, it's a way to, as they would say, unlock capital and do well by doing good, that sort of thing, is that if it's profitable, we are essentially creating global markets in poverty management, which if it is profitable for the individuals participating, they have no incentive to do anything but grow that market. Hmm. They will only grow more poverty if you create global markets and poverty management, which is you will create the harm that would then allows you to, quote unquote, fix it and make money off of it. It's very insidious. Yes, it is. And you're right. Problem, reaction, solution. But wow, it's pretty clear you have a great handle on very complex new things and phraseology like income sharing agreements, social impact bonds or improvement pathways. They're obviously meant to sound altruistic or at a minimum kind of vague and unthreatening. But it's the same with most things. The economy or the stock market more so is a great example. It's these terms that just make your eyes glaze over, I would say by design. Not so boring when you see the profits they're making, though. And with these social outreach slogans, it can be a little tough to truly understand what these things would mean for the everyday lives of people. And this is really where the rubber meets the road when it comes to the importance of your work. I hope listeners take the time to sit with these things that you're saying or at least weigh your words against the world they see coming up around them, because a lot of these pilot programs are being rolled out in test markets, both in and out of the United States right now. A few have come up already, but now that you're really schooling us on some of the things to watch for, where are some of the other places to look where we are starting to see them already? Okay, so one of the major markets, the focus, it's going to be workforce reskilling. Now we know it's tied to the lockdown job losses. So I did not know that a couple years ago when I started that that would be a giant factor. But in 2018, Ready Nation had a gathering, a global gathering in New York City, where they rang the NASDAQ bell and sort of put up in billboards on Times Square, you know, in all the giant LED lights that they were going into pre-K finance and workforce development. And Newsom is very much a part of all of this through the Pritzker family, in particular in California. So these markets were... One of them is in pre-K, as I mentioned before, the Salt Lake City bond. The other key concept that it's important to understand is something called blockchain identity or a decentralized identity system. And that is what is coming with the ID2020 initiative and the biometric health passports. Because what I was saying about the cost offsets is essentially to play this game that they've created and to justify essentially using predictive analytics to profile people into, if not pre-crime, pre-burden, pre-social burden, to enable the profits for J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and UBS Bank, among others, and the Vatican. But in order to make that happen, all of the data has to live in a big pool, because if it is siloed, you cannot pretend that because you gave a child quality pre-K, they didn't end up becoming addicted, you know, or because you provided someone housing that they didn't get diabetes, you know, so all of the data has to live in one place. And that is what the digital identity is set up to do. And that is, it's going to happen through blockchain and blockchain. Most people are aware of it as 
sort of the underlying structure, technological structure for cryptocurrency and digital money, but it is far more than that. It is a decentralized ledger system. And again, no one knows where it came from. Wink, wink, you know, it just showed up on the scene. And I think many people are imagining this as a liberation technology. I don't believe that it is because it's much more than holding value. It's actually holding every bit of information from your birth certificate to your property records, to your health records, these big bits of information, but even down to tiny bits of information will be layered in, you know, where your easy pass was, where you paid in a smart parking meter, where you signed in at the QR code at the grocery store, or the restaurant, what you bought food wise, all of that is going to be layered in and it's going to be sold to us as privacy that they'll say, well, you can keep it private. And isn't that great? Because Facebook won't be making money off of you anymore. You, you'll have control of your own data. But the reality is, is that MIT has developed something called Ocean Protocol to quarry on that data anyway. So it won't stop ed tech or telemedicine or teletherapy. It'll just double down on it, if anything. So blockchain is a vital piece. And the first case study for blockchain identity, there were two in Africa. Surprise, surprise, because this is, this is a very racialized program. I mean, it's coming after everyone, but its origins are in the colonial project. So in Tanzania, they had the first blockchain baby born two years ago, where they assigned a pregnant woman and her unborn child blockchain identities individually, and then tracked their compliance for their prenatal care on blockchain. So that has happened, and that's happening through humanitarian aid. And MasterCard is kind of tied in with that and the Better Than Cash Alliance that Gates is involved with. The other piece is there's a case study in South Africa for the pre-K. And in that, they assigned the pre-K child, the pre-K teachers, the franchise preschool that was set up as a business opportunity for low-income Black women in Cape Town to set up these preschools. And then they can't complain when these new technologies come in. And they would track their attendance because the preschool providers would be paid by the government based on attendance. And so what they did was they replaced regular attendance records with an app. And they framed it that they were allowing the child to build social capital by attending preschool through the app. So they're already predictively profiling these children at like two and three years old through the pre-K programs. Well, I'm in Philadelphia and I'm at, a, at an event last year, a gathering where they were trying to sort of gather up all of the nonprofit press and media to get them on board to sell this program. And there was a woman that I met there who I felt would be receptive to hearing what I had to say. And it turns out she worked for the community development for the city and she had been briefed on Ampli hmm. prior. So people in my city know about this program in Cape Town with blockchaining preschoolers. And the thing that's rather insidious is that the person who created all of these rules are set in partnership with esteemed universities. So the individual who's setting the return on investment parameters for the pre-K program is Jim Heckman. He's a Nobel Prize winning economist out of the University of Chicago, and he's funded through Open Society, which is kind of makes you scratch your head, but that's what it is. So Jim Heckman had created this equation with funding from J.B. Pritzker, the current governor of Illinois, who's working closely with Gavin Newsom on all of this. And they said in a presentation in California, actually, with Pritzker, they were not going to be able to change cognitive data on students that really what they needed to be able to change was their character. And so ultimately, what is going to happen is that they will create data metrics, essentially, for digital brainwashing kids. 
for these global financial markets, and they will do it through virtual reality and gamification, which has been a huge push in education through much of my child's education, seeing it come into the schools. It's behavior management because for this future, they want to know who's going to resist and who won't. And if they can change your behavior and make money off of it, that's the plan. Another example is in Tulsa. This is running through the Head Start programs, a program called Educare, which is franchised in a number of states. And they have what's called a hatch. The hatch education company has created a WePlay smart table, which is essentially a digital play table that looks like a flat screen TV, but parallel to the floor with two fisheye lens cameras that watch the children while they play at this table with digital puzzle pieces and things. And they're supposed to play together so they can see how they interact socially. And then the children are scored on their behaviors. Hmm. And I went down to Tulsa because I have a friend who is actively trying to speak out about what's happening because Tulsa is essentially managed by George Kaiser of the Kaiser Family Foundation and the Schustermans and Bloomberg. And they are remaking Tulsa in this sort of new fourth industrial cyber security version of itself. And it's the 100th anniversary of the race massacre there. And we interrupted Strive Together is the entity that is advancing these cradle to career human capital pathways. And they happened to have an event when I went down in January. And so we disrupted the event. I mean, kindly, but we said, you know, there's more to the story than they're telling you. We don't want our children to be bonded commodities. And we confronted one of the women who ran the program about the surveillance play tables, and she confirmed that they were in place in Tulsa already. Wow. They're pilots. They're not universally used. But when you hear Gavin Newsom speak of advancing universal pre-K, someone needs to ask if that's going to involve putting children on blockchain and putting them on surveillance play tables to track their behavior. Hmm. Yes, I would love to see his face if that question was actually asked. And of course, if you look at the history of the American education system, it's always been about behavior management and obedience training. But this is a whole new level jump, because even though our system was pretty bad, we also had inspiring teachers that we loved despite the overall structure. And now that goes away. The human element has been stripped out. Teachers are just software administrators, and I worry about the kids that this is going to produce. And you mentioned colonial thinking, and that's a really good point. I wanted to read a couple paragraphs from a blog you wrote in January of 2019 called To Serve Man, playing off that classic Twilight Zone episode. But you sort of speak to this when you write, in spite of the strategic branding, we must recognize that social impact investing isn't a charitable endeavor. The intent isn't to serve man, at least not the poor man. What is being sold as the solution to economic inequality is a cookbook, a technologically mediated poverty management cookbook put together by oligarchs to disempower the poor and turn their lives into data for the purpose of legalized gambling. No investment market is designed to eliminate the source of its profit. Logic dictates data-driven, market-based social solutions can never put an end to poverty. Rather, investors will manage services in ways that maximize returns while reducing the likelihood that those trapped within the system will become sufficiently organized to overthrow it. Man, that is very well said. But people still cheer on capitalism without realizing what the game has been about for over a century. I guess I just wanted to drive that point home for people who maybe forgot the history or think something has changed and they're looking out for us now. But this is old thinking mixed with new technology 
And when you line it up with the predator class's actions of the past, it's very consistent. It might be important history for people to review. Well, I agree very much. I'm just a regular person who fell into this, but I feel like I'm in a place to see things and share in a way that I think will give people another lens to look at it. And actually tomorrow, there's going to be, I think, the first protest gathering of the lockdowns here in Philadelphia. And I was initially approached to speak. And I'm a bit leery because some of the wording around the patriot framing is not in line with what I, I feel like the remedy needs to be to this. And so initially I had said yes, but as this event further developed, it became clear they were branding it as this red, white, and blue founding fathers sort of freedom ring element. It was going to be at Independence Hall. And I said, you know, I can't in good conscience participate in this. I am all for opposing this global economic restructuring, but the site at which they were are planning to speak, I know that location, and it is within about 50 feet of the home of the first president of the U.S., which was in Philadelphia at the time, George Washington's home, and he kept nine people in slavery in that house. And at the time, Philadelphia, the black population was free. If you remained in Philadelphia for a certain amount of time, you were entitled to petition for your freedom. And so the president would circulate his black staff in and out of Mount Vernon to preclude them from attaining their freedom. And so I said, you know, I feel very much that this is actually a spiritual battle like that we are in. I mean, that this is a a struggle of spirit. And I said, you can't step off with this cognitive dissonance of speaking of your freedom without acknowledging what the history is. And I'm not saying this because I think to a certain extent there are the push for around the identity politics without moving towards right relationships fragments and further fragments people and makes it more difficult to actually organize against what's happening. But that history cannot be discounted. And it really is our responsibility at this point to give a really hard look, not only at enslavement and unfree labor, but Philadelphia is also the site of the walking purchase, right? Where we ripped off, we took advantage of the good nature of the Lenape people. The Penn family went overreached the terms of the agreement and took land that was by all rights unfairly taken. And so this sets this precedent both on the freedom side of things and on the generosity of indigenous people that we have not held up our part of the bargain. And now it's biting all of us because we've never really, most of us have never reconciled with that. And if you look at what we have done to the indigenous people in terms of removal from land, making it impossible for them to continue their cultural way of life, erasing their culture, breaking up families, making them dependent on the state, and then reneging on obligations to provide food and shelter that was promised. And all of these things are things that are coming after all of us. You know, I was listening to Vine Deloria's book, Custer Died for Your Sins, and it's exactly the same lineup. And it was done very strategically with very clear intentions against populations. And now that the global political economic model has meant that human labor is largely redundant in this world that they are imagining, it hasn't yet been fully implemented. But the world they are imagining, human beings are largely redundant. They're going to figure out a way in which to either get rid of us or manage us in a way that continues to get as much money out of us as they can until they throw us away. And so we need to reconcile with that history and hopefully work towards a right relationship model of healing these wounds, right, and taking responsibility and making it right. And unless we do that, I feel like these pushback movements 
if they're not understood as colonial projects, even at this point with the mRNA vaccinations, down to your cellular level, like it is cellular colonization. If we don't come from the right place, we're going to have a really hard time actually achieving an outcome of justice, of real justice Mm. for all of us. Yes, yes. And you just strike such a unique chord because the dichotomy is the billionaire predator class versus the rest of us. That should be the primary dividing line we focus on, but they spin people off in all these other directions. And I've heard you say at times you feel like a recovering liberal, and that resonates with me a lot. But going back to that history a bit, there are a few situations not that far back that show us other level jumps in the management system. And they have a lot of similarities to this one that we're going through now. A big one I learned about from you would be the globalization efforts in the 80s and 90s, where they replaced the work they could with cheap overseas labor, which meant a lot of the American labor wasn't needed. And that is why, at the same time, we got the war on drugs and the prison industrial complex. It was all to put these people in a managed situation, like they're very connected, and now we're getting automation and robots, and a much larger number of people will be replaced. So they're making the whole world a prison, as you say. It's just a clear example and very helpful for people who find some of this confusing or don't connect the two. Can you elaborate a bit more on what we saw in this chapter of history and how it parallels to what's being implemented as we speak? Yeah, you're exactly right. So that was sort of about managing excess labor under the first phase of globalization. So by targeting black and brown people through criminalizing poverty and the drug wars and putting people into prison, then global finance could create markets that would you know, profit from managing people within both for-profit prisons, but also services that were provided into prisons including many of which were like nonprofits servicing people coming out of prisons. Like this whole structure was embedded. And even if you look into like prison healthcare, huge, huge industries, until you start actually looking at it, if you don't have occasion to really examine the profit systems that are set up around and within prisons, it's enormous. It's enormous. What I'm encouraging people to reconsider is that in China right now, they are actually tracking people on parole on blockchain. Right. So they're tracking their compliance post-release in smart environments with their blockchain identity. Now, I will say that I was actually arrested last May at a protest event relating to our housing authority and charges were dropped ultimately. But I ended up spending a night in jail. It was pretty. But I learned a lot. And what I learned was afterwards, they kept saying, well, we'll just put you in a diversion program and you'll just, you know, let it go and then you'll wipe it off your record. And I was like, what is this diversion program? Right. And and ultimately, what I realized is that the goal of the defund the police and the remove people out of prison, which is well intentioned. You know, I, I myself was subjected to police violence, so I, I totally understand all of that. But if you don't know the mindset, there are several papers, one came out of Penn and one came out of Vanderbilt saying the model will only change if the profit motive is there. So the guards need to become social workers and we need to shift the concept of it. And so when I was going through the process of that, they were aiming to put me through this diversion program, that would be one of these improvement pathways ultimately. Okay, hold that for a moment. In the education space, the entity that most wanted to get rid of schools as physical buildings and create the city as classroom, but this isn't like a fun city as classroom. This is like your classroom is a panopticon police state, right? And you do Pokemon skill collection in your city. 
The people who wanted to set up that model, which we seem fearfully close to getting to, is the MacArthur Foundation, which is based in Chicago, and that money is early insurance money. He was one of like the biggest insurance providers in the 40s. The MacArthur Foundation wanted to create learning ecosystems, of which actually San Diego and Philadelphia are both key pilot programs and badges. You earn these badges. And I thought, well, the MacArthur Foundation is all over prison reform, too. So how does that correspond? How does the learning ecosystem model correspond if we know that they don't want to have actually the responsibility to functionally maintain infrastructure for education if they're doing prison reform? And the idea is that you will never in this next phase of dispossession of the fourth industrial revolution, it will be very challenging to build the number of prisons to hold the excess labor. It will be very difficult and they don't actually want to heat those buildings or really even pay the guards. They really want to have lean labor and automate as much as possible. So ultimately, if what you can do is, and I wrote this in January before COVID hit, but is to, through 5G and satellite systems, create the world as an open air, essentially prison with real-time geofencing tied to this internet of bodies, you can manage people under state control say that it is not incarceration. You can use incarceration as the cost offset, that enormous number that has been built up for the past 20 years as the cost offset for pay for success by keeping people, quote unquote, out of prison and yet on pathways that will manage them and still keep them under state control and under e-surveillance of various types. You know, and that can be just here's your Obama phone and you better do your work based placement. You better do your online therapy. You better eat the right food. You know, you better check in at the doctor. We will manage all of those opportunities for you as a returning citizen, as a pay for success impact market. And if you don't, there will be consequences. And, and when I say I keep ending up in certain places to see things, the International Conference of police commissioners, I think, was in Philadelphia a couple of years ago. And our open data portal, you'll hear lots and lots about e-government and open data. Well, the guy who pushed open government and open data portals for Philadelphia was actually worked for the police department. He spun off a corporate company that developed predictive policing software using our free data to sell it back to our, our city and Detroit and East St. Louis and Chicago. Go figure. It was called Acevea. Well, Acevea held an open house during that conference that was weirdly open to the public. And Hunch Lab, that was their predictive policing software. And so I went because the head of domain awareness system was going and he's like a 27 year old guy. And I'm like, how did you get in charge of domain awareness system, which is New York City's AI camera policing that was developed with Microsoft. And they played a, a real low key event, that whole thing. They did not, they were really downplaying the significance of it. But at the end, we had a couple of choice questions around algorithms for white collar crime and, and that sort of thing. But a guy in the back, he raised his hand and he said, just in closing, I want you to know that the future of policing is predictive analytics, drone surveillance. And essentially what he was saying is they were going to be using drones and predictive analytics and AI, AI policing to run the policing systems. And so that's an open air prison. That's an open air prison. So if you don't stay on your pathway, they will know and there will be consequences. And if all of your ways of surviving live in a digital wallet on your phone, they can just cut that out in real time if you don't fulfill your obligations to the hedge fund markets. And it's incredible. And I'm not saying that it will fully manifest this way, but that's their bigger goal. And so what we have to do is we have to try to get the prison abolition community 
and this applies to immigration too. And this is what I've been trying to speak to the immigration community. The border conversation is at this point in a biosecurity state, in the internet of bodies, the border can be your front door. If you are a threat to the system, you will be identified as a biological threat and the border will be your front door. So we really have to reimagine what the issue of bodily sovereignty and control means in terms of immigration, when immigration could mean that you get to leave your neighborhood. Wow. Yeah, you're right. You never want to be fighting the last war when they've already moved on from that. And yes, they've made us all biological threats, COVID being the operation that makes this stuff socially acceptable. And we see some of the elements like vaccine passports or QR codes starting to be a part of our society. But when it comes to social credits and this blockchain identity, it's a little harder to see how we'll get onboarded to that. A lot of stuff so far has been from businesses, like the mask thing. Businesses have been the enforcement level of these protocols. The government gets to use this middleman and just say to businesses, do this or we'll shut you down. And it provides them a little bit of cover to have that middleman. But with these digital ledgers and credits, I'm sure a lot of people listening are saying to themselves, well, I'm just not doing that. To get people to acquiesce on this issue does seem like a taller order, but of course there are ways. How do these more personal digital ledgers actually enter our lives? Is it coming from somewhere like the next version of TurboTax software and H&R Block? <laughs> so I would encourage people to look up, it's called the Commons Project. And the Commons Project is the Rockefeller Foundation and the World Economic Forum. Okay, And so this outfit... I think came alive in the middle of last year and kind of was in, in sleep mode until April. But they've developed, at least at this point, three different products to manage people through the biosecurity state. And the one that people are hearing about now is Common Pass, which is the airports. A number of the airport Heathrow and other airlines are talking about using Common Pass as this biometric health passport status. And it's clear that the media is covering for this because all you have to do is go to their website. There are other two products. The second one is to manage access to education and employment. Okay, so that's pretty serious, right? If the next one out is that you can't go to your job unless you have a daily health status check or your child can't go to school if they don't have a health status check. And then the other one is real-time health data analytics. And so I, I do believe that that is going to link into a future where they are actually doing biosensors. And I don't think it will be in the first rounds of the covid but clearly they're saying they're grooming us for repeated pandemics, repeated applications of injections. And DARPA is working with Profusa on injectable biosensors that they frame as the future of pandemic preparedness. So it's very clear that the plan is to have us resonate our data, our biological data information with the internet. So these things are not hidden. They're right there on the Commons Project page. And if you look at their board, they have over 60 individuals who are connected to this board. One of the architects, his name is J.P. Pollock. He's affiliated with something called the Small Data Lab, which is at Cornell Technion on Roosevelt Island in New York. That was set up by Google and Michael Bloomberg. I had found that several years ago doing essentially digital dust, your data footprint and how that relates to your health and preventative health status. Pollock is on the board of the Commons Project, as well as Deborah Estrin. And Deborah Estrin, for a long time, was a professor at UCLA and then moved into New York to work at Cornell Tech on the small data lab. But in, I believe it was 2001, there was a national gathering about embedded sensor networks. And they were already envisioning in 2001 smart buildings 
ingestible Internet of Things technology, ubiquitous sensing environments. So that has been 20 years in the making that they knew that they were planning to build this type of world for at least 20 years. You know, and that's a publicly, I think it's called Embedded Everywhere, and you can look it up, Deborah Estrin. So we need to be, before COVID hit, my thought was, because I was doing primarily education research, that it would come through a digital transcript system, and that would be tied to free, quote unquote, college. And for all the progressives out there who are about single payer and free education, it's going to be on blockchain if we don't demand that it is not that. So I thought that you would get some sort of a voucher for education that would tie into a transcript, a digital transcript. And that's something that MIT has been developing with the learning machine in Southern New Hampshire University. And it's also in place in Dallas with backing of JP Morgan and Tulsa. So these were early test beds for the online education transcript. And this is what I want to really relay to people who are doing alternative education systems right now is that I know a lot of people are pulling their kids out of schools because it's such a terrible trauma for kids to be in schools under these circumstances or to be online. Once they get these digital wallets set up, they will be advancing digital education vouchers, which will mean that any entity that accepts the digital payments will very likely have to deliver back data and impact data for these markets. So that if your library, if the climbing gym, if your community theater, all of the things that traditional homeschool and unschooling communities would offer to people who are working outside the educational norm, those things will likely all be co-opted because as soon as they take the public money, they will be tied into the blockchain system. And IBM is a huge part of this. They have something called the learning economy that they're affiliated with. So, and even if you're outside, if in the future, the future of work is determined by AI programs for micro tasks based on your skill locker, which is being set up through this, what's called XAPI technology and the Advanced Distributive Learning Network. If the AI needs to sort your badges to assign you micro tasks, what happens to all the kids once they reach semi-adulthood who need to have employment if they have no badges? You know, I have a child that I'm very glad got all the way through their elementary and secondary education without being in this. And we were very fortunate and privileged in that. But what does that mean when they're 30 and have few badges because they didn't grow up in the badge education version of education, and they're competing against someone in their early 20s who has 500 badges that they earned, right? And I would look up, if you're in San Diego, LRNG, the cities of LRNG, because San Diego is very advanced on the career tracking badges program, as is Philadelphia, and there are about a dozen other cities. So we really, like when we're taking it on, we have to take on the entire structure, because if you just nibble at one bit, it's not going to actually yield the result that is going to be okay for future generations. It just isn't. Right. That's such an important point. And that's why you really are so unique because I'll interview people who do go really hard on one aspect of this and not see how it connects to other things. And it can be difficult, but I mean, in basic terms, it seems like 2020 is the year to crush the economy, push people towards needing government assistance. And then when they need the government, that's when the strings that are attached are easy to see. And it's like everybody's on parole. You have to check in to get the services you need. We all kind of have been bred for system dependence. So it's not hard to see how many people will truly get swept up in this net. And then the 
example of the first blockchain baby in Tanzania was really great. And it really does paint the picture of what they're planning. I mean, what does life look like in Bloomberg's perfect smart city in, say, 2025 or, or 2030? What does the life of an individual look like? Well, I haven't mentioned it yet. I'm sure your listeners are pretty familiar with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and sort of the Earth Summit Agenda 21, like pushing everyone into smart cities. So we're seeing that, again, as a colonial project, a lot of that is also ultimately going to involve pushing indigenous people off of their lands, you know, as a safety for the environment, right, and to keep us safe from pandemic. So that is the World Bank's One Health Initiative. So there's a drive to push everyone into concentrated environments and off of the land itself. The housing piece, a lot of people who talk about stack and pack housing in concentrated urban centers. I, I know, you know, California is the Bay Area is sort of ground zero for that sort of planning. It's really interesting. There's a company called Casita, which is based out of Austin that was talking about essentially creating assembly line tiny houses and the tiny house movement is part of this, is that they're starting with heartwarming stories of like high school kids building them for, you know, needy individuals. But ultimately, they're going to create assembly lines. They're talking about like cars. They frame it as like this sleek, mid-century, modern, like lovely living environment. Incidentally, they say there's 60 Internet of Things sensors in this in this cargo container house, right? Tiny house. So, you know, they will know when you went in with your retinal door scan. They will know, you know, when you first get up in the morning because they have automated shade systems. Cory Doctorow actually has a novella called Unauthorized Bread that speaks to this, the Internet of Things house. And it's within it refugee and immigrant setting. But it's these highly managed, I call them data pods, like your home will be your data pod, right? And, you know, smart refrigerators that know what your food is. One of the things is managing food assistance. And that's another one of these blockchain thought experiments that the state of Illinois has been looking into. In 2018, they put forth a statewide task force to explore blockchain. And one of the concepts they had, and this is all tied in with behavioral economics and Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, is to put food assistance in a digital wallet and then put in digital coding to incentivize proper choices around your food. So that if you made the food choice that they wanted you to make, for example, the apple versus the hamburger, they would give you an incentive payment. And so essentially it's coding every aspect of your life. Now, that thing, while some people might say, well, it's good for people to eat healthy, I think that's a good thing. Look, they're giving them extra. No, because ultimately they will change the benefit amount so that it only works if you always make the right choice. And the right choice may often be impossible if you live in a food desert or you work three jobs or you're housing insecure, right? Like none of those issues are taken under account in this system of blockchain coded behavior management. And in this diagram that they show about incentivizing through coding and Internet of Things the right food choice, that could be anything, any public service. It could be the right health intervention choice, right? It could be the right therapy choice. It could be the right educational choice. It could make any choice that the government wants you to make. Now, at this point, the government is Google and Goldman Sachs, right? Like, or, you know, at all. But those are the representatives of government, the investors in these public-private partnerships. Whatever choice it is that they want you to make is the choice that will be made. And what increasingly concerns me, both about food access as well as healthcare, is this stuff is actually deeply embedded in eugenics and managing people's genomic and bioinformatic information. And so synthetic biology is a huge piece of the fourth industrial revolution. And 
these are individuals who could very well create impact markets in managing people as genomic receptors, injecting people through either healthcare interventions or food interventions to actually re-engineer them biologically to suit some sort of aspirational idea of what a human in service of the fourth industrial revolution for Davos would look like. And I will just throw this out there because I've been doing a lot of research lately around social finance. Ronald Cohen has different outfits in the UK and the US. He has one in Israel. And I've been looking at social finance Israel. And much of it is embedded in Israel being the startup nation. And now Israel is going to be the impact nation around social impact. And they're actually setting up all sorts of social impact markets with the Rothschild Foundation in Israel. But much of the startup nation emerged out of its national infrastructure around supporting cybersecurity because everyone does military service. And so the best and the brightest are trained in those systems and they're lifted up and given support to start their own technology companies, many of which are biotech. But unit 9900 is a surveillance unit, visual satellite surveillance, and they're actually working with autistic children, young adults, you know, at this point, but people who, who have a certain mental framework that makes them a good fit to do that sort of work. And so you know, I think we just really have to be very thoughtful about how this is playing out and how these different parts are playing out in terms of managing people as domestic livestock, pretty much. I mean, looking at domestic livestock or even wildlife population management, the billionaires see us in that same vein. We are really no different to them than livestock. And I think as you had said that in the beginning. So you've got your smart house, you're making your food choices. Maybe you have your smart toilet. They actually have I've mentioned like sphincter, biometric sphincters. They know who sits on the toilet and what the results are. You know, you go to your workforce placement, but maybe the workforce, you work for Unit 990. This isn't here, but like you're sitting on your sofa doing satellite analysis, right? You, like you never get to leave your house, except for maybe you're required to, to get your social prescribing physical health aspects. And so that they'll have internet of things, sensors in your shoes that know when you took a walk and what your heart rate was. And this is tied in with something called social prescribing that Michael Bloomberg is advancing through something called participatory cities. And it, again, it's all aligned to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Bloomberg was both the ambassador to the World Health Organization and the UN for climate change. So he has essentially acquired dozens and dozens of mayors in cities throughout the United States, throughout Europe, and even in India, and now in Israel, to carry out this data-driven what works government program that is about transforming people into these data commodities through every aspect of your life function, both individually and socially. Mm. Wow. <laughs> that is a, a really great breakdown. I hope it opens up some eyes out there. And some of the things you said made me think about how before COVID was the justification for this stuff, climate change seemed to be, right? And we do hear the conversation about climate change lockdowns being necessary. And it's another thing to look out for when it comes to this problem, reaction, solution kind of template. And that is really what I'm worried about most, not being able to even go to get my meat from a sustainable local farm because he's basically driven out of business. And another aspect that we keep seeing is you know, COVID crushed a lot of mom and pop independent businesses, yet Target and Walmart haven't been closed a day. And it just starts to make me think about how this really is an attack on independent businesses. And when they change up the currency, when it becomes these credits, like, you know, a universal basic income, and they say, well, you can only use these credits at certain places. 
that looks like it could really be the death blow to non-corporate outside of the club businesses. Yeah, I agree. I mean, people need to understand what token economics is. Cryptocurrency isn't just about digital versions of fiat currency. It really is tokens. Anything can be tokenized. And this is what's really challenging. So one of the things I found a couple years ago early on was that Australia, which is, again, seeing really repressive measures around the lockdowns, they were piloting something through. They're among these 10 digital nations. We aren't it, but like Canada, the UK, Israel, Estonia, Paraguay, and Portugal. I mean, there's like 10 of them, and and Australia is one of them, of going towards electronic government and open data government. They were piloting putting their disability benefits on blockchain, and they framed it. It's called Making Money Smart, the white paper. Making Money Smart, and it was about programmable money. And then I have a friend there who is familiar with how the social welfare system is working out. And they're revisiting everybody's entitlements, right? And I'm hearing the same thing happening in the UK. Because if you imagine we're moving to a world of telepresence labor, right, where labor is happening digitally around the world and people are competing digitally with other people around the world. But then there's also haptic controlling labor where people are controlling remote control robots in other parts of the world. That when you have someone who is physically limited and does not have the mobility to get into a a certain place of employment, that all of a sudden their access to their benefits could start to become reliant on, well, you need to be a cafe waiter through a robot in order to retain your tokens for your disability benefit. These robots being operated by disabled people, that's advanced in Japan. But you can very much see how I was hearing things in Philadelphia. We had a special city council poverty committee. And the things they were saying made no sense if you understand the fourth industrial revolution, because what they were saying is now the elderly need to, we need to figure out ways to reskill all the elderly. Well, if you took it on face value that the fourth industrial revolution was automating labor so that people would have a better quality of life, certainly you wouldn't be about reskilling the elderly to do this work, right? But it's not about that. It's about creating pathways to make the elderly jump through hoops so that someone can bet on them in an impact market. So this idea of tokens and programmable money that even your rights and entitlements could be a token. There have been a number of papers that I've read around blockchain healthcare that your health status would be a token. It would be represented as a token. But your health status could also be framed as a right and a privilege or unlocking rights and privileges. This is a gamified universe. And I have a webinar I would encourage people if they're interested in augmented reality and in Ethereum smart contracts with my friend Joseph Gonzalez, who has a 30-year career in game design and blockchain and AI. We, we did a webinar on it called, well, if you go to Wrench in the Gears and put the webinar you've been waiting for, it will come up. But understanding life in these interactive, smart environments where the tokens and currency and value get very muddy with your rights. And again, I have my own issues with the founding fathers, but if all of a sudden our rights that are given to us as citizens of our respective nations are somehow overrided by token rights that are guided by our compliance to public-private partnership agreements that have been made because we've been dispossessed out of having any autonomy over our future. That's a very different thing. And people need to understand that the entities in charge of these smart contracts may start out being people, but there are, there's something called a decentralized autonomous organization, which is essentially a corporate entity created in code that runs on binary logic that has no people involved once they start it. 
So it could very well be that these whole systems are become run by AI. And then it doesn't even have to be generalized intelligence. It could just simply be a corporate entity running on computer code. And then how do you how do you even engage in that if there's injustice? It's crazy. And right now, you know, when I was doing the work around Israel, they because Israel is actually running the COVID reopen program in the state of Rhode Island, which is crazy to me that no one is talking about that. But Gina Raimondo has invited in the Israeli health ministry to manage the COVID situation in Rhode Island. And Israel, like among their digital nation programs, they talk about having a rights engine so that everyone will have their rights, you know, on a wallet, but everybody has different rights. <laughs> and they frame it as sort of your benefit entitlement. Like, oh, look, you know, you'll know at any point in time what your entitlements are. But I don't think it's ultimately going to be intended to be a good thing. The entitlements that you have when you leave your house in the morning, if something happens to you along the way, there's that black mirror you know, nosedive episode, you know, something happens to you that you fall in a, a foul of the system and then you come home and your retinal scan on your affordable housing pod doesn't work. Right. And that's the kind of world that we risk building if we don't speak up and understand the bigger picture. Yes. Yes. Cheers to that. And I guess that brings me to solutions. You know, when we do shows like this, I definitely like to remind people that the plan is just the plan. We don't know exactly how far they'll get with it. So maybe we can ease up a little bit on the hyperventilating and the panic thinking and, and focus on solutions instead of just staring slack jawed at the totality of what's coming. And I've heard you mention looking at indigenous sovereignty movements. I think that's smart. America's always had groups of people like even say the Amish who do live within the gates, but they don't really participate. So I don't know, maybe that's something to think about. But I know Philadelphia, that's the funny thing. When I moved here like 20 years ago, you know, I was sort of infatuated with the myth of what Philadelphia was. And then I realized for all of the mythological, like colonial aspects, there are really amazing counterpoints to that, that are actually probably more of a real freedom. Like Du Bois's you know, W.B. Du Bois spent time here writing The Philadelphia Negro and John Coltrane and Paul Robeson. And, you know, really these days, I think a lot about John Africa and move, you know, John Africa, he really knew a lot. <laughs> and that's why he was such a target, right? Like why move was such a threat to the status quo of the city of Philadelphia, that they had to drop a giant firebomb in the middle of the city on move was that the ideas of John Africa couldn't really be out there. Mm. So yeah, there's a lot of other possibilities. And I think that's why I'm trying to channel like tomorrow in lieu of that event that I'm not participating in that was the Founding Fathers sort of centered is that I still want to do something. And so we're going to go to, I've invited people to join me at Six and Market, which is where the Washington Washington's house was where he kept people enslaved. We're going to do an intention there and acknowledge the ancestors of those people who resisted for so long, because I do think that there is something about acknowledging ancestors and acknowledging people that have gone before. I don't think they're really totally gone, right? I think yeah. we can acknowledge them and bring them into our consciousness of, of how we proceed. And then we're going to reject the contract of human capital bonds at the Philadelphia Fed and then walk. It's about a 15 minute walk over to the house of William Still, who was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. And his house is still there. It's been made over, but the stoop with the steps, the limestone steps are eroded where all of the footprints and he sheltered over 690 enslaved people and their escape to freedom. So those are the people that we need to be connecting with, I think, energetically right now is how did people oppose totalitarian systems that would seek to erase their humanity, both enslaved people and indigenous people, and to know that if we keep 
they are winning by the narrative. They are winning by the storytelling, by the media. And we have to present a compelling counter narrative, I think, that speaks to the history, but also speaks of the possibility of redemption and love. And I think we can do that, but we have to keep finding new ways and new networks to share that, you know, responsibility and redemption and love. I think that's where I feel like it needs to come from. And I know that there's a big movement of people who are trying to build sort of more autonomous communities. And I think that's very interesting. I'd like to imagine that that idea would work. I mean, given directed energy weapons and geoengineering, I don't know how viable that is as a long-term solution. I think some of us who can are meant to stand and face this thing. And I feel Mm -hmm. like, at least for me right now, that that is the thing. If I need to go to Washington and call out the woman from Goldman Sachs to say, don't put children on surveillance play tables, I do that. You know, I need to show up and speak truth to power. And that's what I'm trying to do and invite others but I think alternative communities are useful in coming up with models. And I, I met with when I went to New York recently to speak at an event against Cuomo's proposal for vaccine mandates. There was a group in the Hudson Valley that was developing some economic independence, like farming communities, independent holistic health and education options and supporting foodways. It's beautiful, actually. I mean, they invited me and I really received a gift in return to be part of that community. So Yeah. uh, I mean, (laughs) I've been trying to do what I can from behind this computer screen, but you definitely make me feel like I need to put my money where my mouth is and get out there and do a lot more. And we should fight back. But I also worry about how for half my life I've had alternative thoughts on things and I can't seem to get my friends and family that I love to to acknowledge that there are other ways to look at certain events in in history. And it's just like, there seems to be such a barrier between uh, being open to alternatives and not. And I I don't know what it is in, uh, in my DNA that's different than a a buddy of mine's DNA, but he he just won't look at it. So I worry about our ability to fight back because I worry about our ability to increase our numbers when the totality of the machine is is so well executed and MKUltra goes back so far and the education indoctrination system is is so uh, absolute, it just seems like some people are grabbed by that mainstream and you just can't shake them loose. And I feel like a wedge is being driven between alternative thinkers and the friends and family that we love who, who are still inside the circle. And I don't know, do you have tips for outreach for getting to those people i I mean and 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 living in in the world where we reject a vaccine and stuff like that i have a friend who's just a very good soul and he gave me some advice and he said you know you can't you're not going to be able to change people you can't change anyone but there are intercessionaries in faith practice there are intercessionaries that carry the message and so you put your intention out You put your intention out into the world and then you have to have faith that it will go where it needs to go. And maybe the place that you feel like it should go, it doesn't go, but it goes to other places. And I'm kind of amazed at people who get in touch with me through my blog that are in all sorts of interesting places and have interesting backgrounds. And I would never imagine my message would get to them, but it did. Right. And so we have to have faith in that system. And in one of the recent talks I was listening to with John Trudell, you know, he said, time is actually on our side. And that's hard to feel like because it feels like there's such a pressure to act. And I'm not saying we should just skate along and not think about it, but I think we shouldn't be panicked because time, a lot of this, if you think about it, like the Western science and sciences and and access to knowledges that aren't public knowledges, right? About physics and about other 
quantum physics and string theory and time. <laughs> the people who are in power in charge of these military systems have far more sophisticated understandings and access to technologies that we know nothing of, or we maybe only have glimpses of. And so I think that if we're coming from a place of spirit, that there might be more time than we think. And I don't know, I would say my friend, like after the ceremony that we did on the water, and she said, you know, there's a Lakota story that talks about the creator being very upset with people and just wanting to destroy the earth. And that the eagle sort of intervened and said, don't be too hasty. Give me a little bit of time. Let me go and check things out. And then the eagle like flew around and around for like many days and was not seeing anything good, but then eventually caught sight of one man and one woman who were fulfilling the old practices that were keeping the old ways. And that was restorative. And so the eagle brought that back to the creator and said, you know, just so you know, there's still a couple of people out there who were meeting their obligation, like doing the commitment. And then at that point, that was enough to sort of stave off the end of the world. You know, at that point, it was to foreclose that, but it was only a couple of people. It wasn't everybody, right? And so I think if we're thinking about time and possibility, Robin Wall Kimmer is another one of my favorite thought people. And she's a forestry school professor, a biologist at the SUNY system in New York. And she's citizen Potawatomi Nation. And she talks about Chittagon, the Chaga tinder fungus, and that it was used to carry the embers from upstate New York, where her people were pushed out of to the Great Lakes region. And they carried the fire in these tinder funguses. And that this idea that it is our responsibility to be the tinder carrier, right? And we might want a wildfire, <laughs> like we might want to be the big bonfire and something, but it might not be that time. But if we refuse our responsibility to at least carry it as far as we can carry it, then that forecloses that option for the future generations to have access to that ember. So I feel like that's what we're doing now, even though we might want to see a wildfire of resistance. If we trust that there is a larger plan and that we are coming at this from a place of good intention, then we do the best we can with what we have in the moment and then hope that that's enough and hope that our fortitude and trying to do the right thing the right way will eventually people will acknowledge it when the door opens for them to be able to do that. Very poetic. I love it. It is true. I mean, at the end of the day, all we can do is be proud and comfortable of our own actions and let the chips fall where they may. And man, just really good advice. This has been so interesting and enjoyable. Obviously, we need high quality sources for breaking this stuff down. That's the role that I've tried to fill is connecting people to those high quality sources like yourself. And your website is definitely a great tool. Your recent presentation, Biometric Health Passports and the Panopticon is what I've been trying to share as my Hail Mary to people. I'm like, I know I only get one with some of the people who know me best. I'm like, just watch this one thing. It didn't come from David Icke. It has nothing to do with Alex Jones. You know, check this out. And I'm hoping that that it is uh, going to resonate with some people that have been hard to reach for me, but fingers crossed. And thanks so much for being here. Any other links to give the people or upcoming events or plans they should know about? You know, no, at this point, we're just, we're taking it one day at a time. <laughs> <laughs> if this is not live, I would say if it were live, just think about me tomorrow. It's going to be pouring down rain. We're going to be taking the evergreens to the Federal Reserve Building and refusing their contracts. But yeah, wrenchinthegears.com is my blog. So I would love if people want to check it out and hear what you think, you know, and 
if you have a compelling reason to think that I'm wrong, like I, I'm open to hearing that too, because I don't really want to be right about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well said. And intention sounded cheesy to me maybe five years ago, but when you really digest the science there and the long history of people using it, there is something to it. So whether it's tomorrow or whenever the show goes up, we will send you some good intention. Right. And it's truly been an honor and a pleasure. I'm thankful we were introduced and hopefully we can meet for real sometime. But until then, take care and keep fighting the good fight. All right. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Wow. Just wow, guys. I feel very fortunate to have gotten this interview with Allison because I think she's hovering over the target more than most. Of course, there's a reason for all this data collection and surveillance technology. Of course, there's a reason why they're starting when kids are young and implementing so much of this at the school level. And it shouldn't surprise anyone that all of this data is being collected from smart fridges to Fitbits to if you've gotten your gold star or not for the COVID vaccine. It's all being fed back into Wall Street databases where they can run a very similar game to the one they played with our mortgages. It's the mind virus of global management. And it makes me think about that curious question we often speculate about, which is whether or not the predator class thinks of itself as evil. How do they really feel about their own actions when it comes to this sort of stuff? Personally, I think it starts with their own superiority complex and their attitude that the world needs their management. They're afraid of a little chaos. They're afraid of letting go of the wheel. And they think that they're in the positions they're in because it's how it's supposed to be. And I think that they think if they're doing this management for the good of the world, they might as well build a system to monitor it and make a little money from their own management. Bada bing, bada boom. Hard to really know. And it's a mixed bag, I'm sure. I bet there were colonizers frothing at the mouth who enjoyed watching the skin melt from the bones of the indigenous. But I would imagine most of them were reluctant implementers who were just stuck on bad ideas, saying things like, you know, I wish I didn't have to do this if you would just accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Does it matter to the person tied to the stake? No. And I'm not trying to make excuses for this sort of stuff, but if we wrap our own minds around their mindset, how could they do what they do and sleep at night? I think it becomes easier to see where these threads are leading, and it's right where Allison is focused, if you ask me. And honestly, when Bill Gates and Bloomberg and pretty much any of these guys speak, they get a standing ovation. They get people fawning over them to a ridiculous degree, wanting to shake their hand and take pictures and cry being in their presence. You think that doesn't reinforce their shitty mindset? It definitely makes me feel like, well, we get what we deserve sometimes. It's frustrating to take a minority position on pretty much every issue, right? I'm losing my patience here. I can count on one hand the times that these people actually got even a very mild taste of what they deserve. When the guy threw the shoe at George W. Bush, when someone egged Bill Gates in the late 90s, I think he also got pied in the face once too. Pretty tame stuff and very rare. But these people have thousands of human interactions a week, and most of it is, gee, thanks for all the work you do. Humanity would be lost without your brilliant leadership. So forgive me for being a bit cynical about any hope that we can actually keep this stuff from happening. 
It's always way after the fact that people finally say, man, I guess the war in Iraq was a bad idea. I guess they did lie about that. Maybe the war on drugs and mass incarceration was a bit gross too. And even when the scales tip and the overwhelming majority finally sees the light, the bulk of the damage is already done. And it even continues in both the examples there, the war in Iraq and the war on drugs. The public endorsement of it has changed, but it hasn't changed for the people who were most affected by it and still are affected right now. I can cover a lot of subjects around here unemotionally, but this gets under my skin. And it is important to maintain some sense of hope. It is, as difficult as it might be. I really admire Allison's ability to unpack these things and actually go and confront the implementers and resist in a real, in-person way. She does it all. A true inspiration. And while I still want to keep the Higher Side Chats open to a wide range of topics and not forget about the mystery and wonder in the world outside of the heavy conspiratorial themes of our time, I'm also on a bit of a personal quest lately to align with the right people. The Allison McDowells, the Whitney Webbs, the Derek Broses, the local SoCal grass-fed ranchers. Because I think it's going to be important to know the people that I really think are building the new world. These are the party planners for the freaks, weirdos, and rebels that are going to be kicked out of the new techno-society. And I want my invite, because... I couldn't really imagine trying to go it alone. You're watching me in real time try to steer my assets towards better networking. And it really is a win-win-win for them, for you, and for me. And I hope you're taking what you've built or what you're good at and doing something similar. Probably on a local level, because when shit really hits the fan, is it going to mean anything that uh, I have a few good contacts in Philly? One day at a time, right? But I did love this interview, and I've been very liberal with THC Plus free trial coupon codes this year because I do think the words of our guests are more important than they were even a year or two ago because the stakes have changed. I've given these codes out on about a dozen interviews that I've given on other shows. I gave out a couple on Twitter. I gave out one when we talked to Dr. Kaufman and just a couple shows back with Nora Gedgoudis. There's even one on my little MP3 filler for the joint session if you're subscribed to the free feed. But all that's just to say, if you haven't used any of them yet, this is definitely a show that I would dig one out for. Some of the stuff we talked about in the second hour would include token economics, geofencing, and the space-based global prison, how major video game companies are involved in this. That was pretty surprising to me. We also talked about Ross Ben, a few other colleagues, and the spiritual aspects of all this. It's a great episode of what I do around here, but I'm also telling you that the vast majority of what we talked about today is in her presentation, Biometric Health Passports and the Panopticon. It is free on YouTube, where THC is still in timeout for a few more days, but go and watch it there on her channel, or go to wrenchinthegears.com where you'll find it on the first page. But share this presentation with people. 
It's probably a better strategy than attacking the virus paradigm directly or trying to convince people that the predator class would intentionally put something harmful in a globally rolled out and in some cases soon to be required vaccine, despite the sketchy history there that people won't look at. I think those things are important, but maybe not the best plan of attack. Maybe three weeks ago I thought it was, because that's what I had in my arsenal. However, everyone thinks Wall Street is greedy and heartless, and we have the template of 2008 to weigh this against. And with that, people might start to see it. The globalization overlap with the rise of the prison industrial complex is also a great parallel that might help nudge more people towards that aha moment we've been so anxiously waiting for. When I've asked a lot of our guests this year how to get through to people we love, a lot of them have come back with, well, not everyone is going to see it. You can't make them, and not everyone is going to make it through this. Well, I'm not quite ready to give up and just watch the people I'm closest to get walked off a ledge into the ocean. I know it's tough when data collection and herd management is widely seen as philanthropy, when what people see as altruistic world leaders of global health are actually billionaires using the husk of global health to exert control over each individual, what people consider the economy is a manufactured rigged game of hamster wheels and rat races distracting humanity from a deeper spiritual calling, and people rarely ask why things are the way they are. They just don't reverse engineer the whole thing back to who benefits and why it was implemented. It's like Allison had said, she thought she was fighting school closures in Philadelphia, but has come to realize she's fighting a militaristic technocracy takeover of all aspects of life and society. You gotta know the game you're playing to play it right. It's no small thing, but when it comes to our own personal outreach, we will not get a lot of chances to make our case. So when you do, make sure you know your stuff and you approach things strategically. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, or something like that. But either way, make sure you're following Allison, because she's onto it. They have created the conditions of poverty and lockdown-derived income devastation and limited choice that will allow them to quote-unquote fix it, and also profit greatly off of it. But I don't know what else to say. I hope it was as good for you as it was for me. Wrenchinthegears.com for more. I'm trying to give you the best tools I can and really drive home that the conspiratorial counterculture is the better culture, despite what they say about us. But I'll see you next time. I've done my part. Your move, education co-opters, digital dystopia directors, and builders of the technocratic global prison. Your fucking Sometimes when I get down, I eat a bunch of corporate junk. Process stuff that makes you fat Yeah, it's a weak and sickly people making industry Don't tell me Don't tell me
technology And every now and then I try 